What's up, everybody? Welcome to the newest episode of Demo Day, the podcast for entrepreneurs and venture capitalists where we demystify the culture of joining one of the top accelerator, incubator, or VC programs from around the world. I'm your host, Sean Goldman, CEO of Coefficient Labs, and on today's show, we'll be interviewing Sean Aurora, Managing Director of Make in LA and an angel investor in the LA tech ecosystem. At Make in LA, Sean is cultivating a community to help founders scale and avoid both common and uncommon pitfalls in bringing hardware to market. Sean covers what it was like building his own startup, problems that he sees other founders face in their earliest days, and why now is the best time for entrepreneurs to build hardware startups in Los Angeles. Also, Coefficient Labs is giving away a $10,000 growth hacking package for one VC and one founder that leaves a rating and a review on the Apple podcast. So if you're listening to this on podcast or watching it on our website, Go check out the Apple podcast, leave us a review, and you have a chance at winning. Without further ado, let's get into Demo Day. Sean, thank you so much for coming on the show with us today. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. Awesome. So we always like to... Um, you know, sort of build some context around the guests we have on the show. And, um, you know, as with most podcasts, tend to like to start with sort of what was early life like for you and, you know, bring us back to the early days. I know before we started on the podcast, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, your radio days and, and sort of uh, how music has played a part in your life. Where did you grow up and um, tell the viewers and listeners a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, I'm an L.A. native. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. Um, after 18 years, I wanted to get out of town, so I moved to St. Louis, Missouri, went to college there, did my undergrad. Um, I was a dorky computer science kid, always a little bit of an outcast, which I think a lot of founders could relate to. Um, and at, in St. Louis, I fell in love with um, consumer insights, and I became a cultural anthropologist helping um, liquor companies figure out how to best target um, their media, their messaging to increase their sales. When did you first uh, have access to a computer? Can you remember the earliest time that you were playing around with this sort of technology? Mac SE. So that was 85. Um, my father brought it home and it was just mag one of those magical moments. And, and um, when you, at what age did you... Um, start to utilize your knowledge of computers and engineering and start to focus more on business. Um, was it when you were in college or was it even before that? Even before that. So I got into coding in um, high school, in junior high actually, um, but in high school it really took off and I was making apps on my TI-82 calculator. It was like a graphic calculator. You can make small little apps and programs, and I would sell those to to other students on, on campus. I remember that, that the TI eighty three was when uh, students started to like you know cheat in their high school classes and make little uh, programs. So I I remember that calculator very well. Um, did you? Uh, always know that you wanted to move into uh, venture and into helping startups, or did that come later on in your life? Yeah, no, I. Um, it's just something I kind of fell into. It's like the Steve Jobs uh, commencement speech where he said, "In hindsight, it all kind of looked, it all kind of made sense." But learning typography, learning all these different fields, it didn't make sense at the time. He just went to whatever felt comfortable. Like, meaning you can only, right, he said you can only connect the stars looking, uh, you can only connect them looking dots. back, yeah. connect the dots looking backwards, right? Yes. Yeah, you can never connect them looking forwards. Exactly. 
Yeah, so I just went with whatever excited me. So I was excited about consumer insights, cultural anthropology. I was excited about mentoring. I launched two nonprofits focused around inner city uh, youth. Um, and it was all fun, but then I got pulled into the manufacturing world. I got into manufacturing. That's why making all these focus on hardware because I fell in love with the manufacturing ecosystem in Los Angeles. And while I was building a company, a hardware company in Los Angeles, um, I felt insecure as a leader. So I started to work with more startups and try to understand how those leaders are facing challenges similar to mine. And I learned a lot from those entrepreneurs. What sort of, if you if you don't mind, can we talk more about the insecurities you felt as a leader? I think that a lot of the people that watch this show are either founders that are thinking about joining an accelerator program, founders that are currently in one. But um, you know, time and time again, whenever we talk to founders of startups, um, they oftentimes talk about transferring from a you know being a, a team member or a manager into a leader. What does being a leader mean to you, and and what did you learn about yourself in those early days uh, of running your first startups? Well, initially, it was um, it was a challenge to be a leader because it's very isolating, and you don't have a community. That's why I love running the accelerator. I I, I love what's happened to the ecosystem now. You have co-working spaces where you have. Um, leaders able to exchange ideas with other leaders. That's what YPO tried doing back in the day and um, EO and all these other um, executive organizations where you get leaders together to exchange ideas. For me, it was, uh, it was fairly lonely. And so a lot of it was trying to figure out what to share with your team and what to, to keep inside yourself. You don't want to say that, holy crap, our business is going to run out of money in the next uh, 24 hours. Um, you keep some of that to yourself. Some of that you do end up saying when you really need to motivate people, say, hey, our business is running out in the next 24 hours unless we do X, Y, and Z, versus all the, the typical insecurities, the lawsuits, or whatever else is going on in running a typical business. Yeah, I, I think that you know people and founders oftentimes hear uh, the concept of it's lonely at the top, but I think that um, you know it's uh, it feels a lot different when you're in that position. It's very easy to say it, but certainly when you're going through that and you have you know, people's lives at, at stake and you're trying to support them, um, I can imagine and, and feel myself running Coefficient Labs, you know, the, the responsibility and pressure um, and loneliness that you can feel in some of those pressure uh, moments. When did you decide to transition from, you know, basically leading and running uh, your own company or your own startup to start to move towards this accelerator uh, mi mindset and, and really helping companies and being a mentor to them as opposed to necessarily being the one that's running the show? Right. So when um, I really enjoyed running the business at the 20, 30, 100 million dollar level, once we got to over 600 employees, it became less fun because the job of the leader uh, transforms. It goes uh, from one where you're able to immediately affect change to one where you're really working through other people to help them to work through other people to affect change. So there's all these different layers, and me being a very impatient person, I, I, I didn't enjoy it that much. I wanted to work in smaller companies. So I started transitioning out at that point, and I was able to transition fully about um, four to five years later. And what is it uh, for people that have been in a similar position as you and are thinking about, maybe they're an associate at a VC fund, maybe they're thinking they've come out with an exit and have always wanted to put together their own accelerator. Uh, what's it like to put together a fund from the, or I'm sorry, an accelerator from the very, very beginning? What was going through your mind back in the early days? Um, I was very naive. It's really probably one of the most idiotic things you could do because you're running up against uh, a lot of walls. First off, um, there's a lot of accelerators out there, so there's a little bit of accelerator fatigue. Um, second, 
we wanted to run the accelerator at no cost of entrepreneurs, which meant we had to create a venture fund. Venture funds are generally created by people who are already at venture funds who spin off their own funds. So being an emerging manager is a completely different landscape and trying to talk to uh, family offices and fund of funds and lim- all these limited partners out there who invest in venture is definitely a challenge, a very rewarding challenge, but it is really, really tough. What recommendations do you have for other venture capitalists that are trying to decide between going to family funds, going to other LPs? You know, for, for people that are in their first two to three years of venture, what recommendations do you have for them or, or maybe some pitfalls that you have overcome in your early days? Well, the recommendation that I have would be, um, regardless of the background, it helps to build a business. So there are some people that go straight from college into venture. These are finance people. And when you take a board seat, you're trying to express some sort of opinion. You're trying to do some pattern matching. But at the end of the day, if you haven't operated a business, you don't have the same level of empathy for the founder as an operator who's in venture. I love engineers and operators in venture. It's a very different mindset than the financial people. Now, talk to us a little bit more about Make in LA because you just mentioned how there's so many different accelerators. You know, we've talked to Techstars and Quake and Luma and, and so many different companies that are trying to find their niche. Uh, who is Make in uh, LA? What you know? What are you guys about? And tell us a little bit more about what your mission is and what you're trying to do over at, at Make in LA. Sure. So we started four years ago, it was, uh, 2015, and at that time there was a boom in consumer hardware. Um, we saw a lot of companies, a lot of entrepreneurs say, I want this to exist. And if you go back 20, 30 years ago, they wouldn't be able to make it or it would be incredibly expensive. They ha- might have to work for many years at, um, at Xerox or IBM and maybe they'll get access to a lab and maybe they'll be able to tinker with this type of product or maybe they'll save enough money where they could work with various partners in the supply chain. Um, but thanks to technologies like Raspberry Pi, Um, cloud computing, a lot of uh, chips have empowered people to make prototypes. You can make one really, really easily. I could go home right now and make a smart thermostat or a smart doorbell. It's, uh, so the barriers are gone for prototyping. And a lot of these entrepreneurs said, it was so easy for me to make one. Why can't I just make this over and over again and mass produce this and sell this? So we saw this big boom in Kickstarter campaigns and these entrepreneurs would come to me because of my hardware background and say, um, hey, could you help me manufacture this? And I would say, no, your credit stinks. You spend way too much money and time on this. You have a long way ahead of you, and it's really difficult for me to help you with the tools I have. Why don't you go look for for other people who could help you go approach venture capital? And there weren't a lot of options out there. So we said, okay, we need to start figuring this out ourselves. And that's where the idea of making LA started to be born. We started gathering these experts all over L.A. L.A. has amazing talent from battery technology, medical devices, rockets. Uh, You have all these incredibly smart people who understand hardware. They understand thermal expansion. They understand physics. But they weren't contributing back to the ecosystem. There was no center of mass for these entrepreneurs. So we created a, a space and a program to attract these type of people so that they are able to advise entrepreneurs, help them avoid these mistakes. I, um, I have this Rolodex that I still keep to this day, and it has all these different contractors. And anytime someone says, hey, I'm thinking about working with this firm, I'm thinking about working with that firm, I could go through this and say, hey, this person worked here, here's their feedback. It's kind of like um, I have like this giant Yelp or um, um, this giant Rolodex of different service providers where I could say, if you go to this person, expect to overpay, expect to not get the, the products or services that you want. Whereas if you're a first-time entrepreneur, we had these first-time entrepreneurs 
get seduced because that guy had a McLaren in his parking lot, so he must be successful. Mm. And and so within that regard, is that one of the big pitfalls that happens in the hardware space that um, because these entrepreneurs have such good ideas to make the prototype, they don't necessarily know how to take it to scale. What are some of the other problems that you've seen for hardware startups maybe that are, you know, maybe two employees to five employees, but they haven't really crossed that, that threshold? What's some of the things that they're going to have to... Uh, um, run into as their uh, days, months, years continue to go on? There's a lot of challenges. So first I would say is a storytelling aspect. A lot of these uh, entrepreneurs have made a product solving a personal problem. And it's great that you could solve a problem for yourself. If you're trying to make a bigger company, if you're trying to go to mass manufacturing, you're going to have to amortize all your um, non-recurring expenses. That means that you need to figure out how to sell a bigger product, how to sell it to more people. So storytelling is incredibly important for these entrepreneurs. And if you're coming out of an of a engineering mindset and you aren't as familiar with storytelling, we love helping those type of people out. Um, oftentimes, it's just unlocking something inside them and having them talk to different customers. And they just get excited by, oh, my God, this is so much bigger than I ever thought it could be. When you think about what uh, Make in LA could become over the next several years, where where do you see it going from now? I mean, it, it's it's clearly now over the last four or five years been you know continuing to build momentum. Uh, what would a success look like for you as you think you know deeper down the road over the next five to ten years? Yeah. Um, so going back to your your other question, you talked um, you talked about the challenges for hardware entrepreneurs. The other is capital. So there are these hot companies that raise a lot of money and then they spend a lot of money and then because they spend all that money, then they might have a down round or they might have blown up and the, um, the ecosystem says hardware is too expensive. And my goal is to change that. If companies are more strategic about how they raise money, if they take it in different tranches, if they spend that money wisely, then hardware doesn't have to be capital intensive. We have this one company that got to about $10 million in sales after raising under $2 million. And it's hard for SaaS companies to get to, to that scale. Hardware can be done incredibly capital efficiently if you don't make mistakes, if you do things in a very smart way. Are there any companies that, you know, either are currently in making LA or just companies in general in the hardware space that you think are doing it right or that you think are positioning themselves for, you know, a big growth uh, over the next, let's say, one to two years? Yeah, sure. Um, can I can I pick on my own companies? Of course. Yeah, right. yeah. Tell us about some of the ones you're really excited about. Great. Yeah. So, um, one of my favorite companies is Amped Innovation. Don't tell the others. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but what what I like about this company, they make um, solar power systems for the developing world. Okay. And there's a lot of companies out there that could just take a solar pa- panel and a battery system and deploy it in um, in Ghana or in um, in um, Southeast Asia. What they've done is figured out how to design for extreme affordability so they're able to get the price of electricity down to parity with kerosene. So you're getting all these people who are currently using kerosene to read at night to switch over to electricity. Now that you've got people to switch over to electricity, you could upsell them by charging an extra 10 cents a month or extra 20 cents a month on something that's going to be a productive use appliance. So they could get a maze grinder and they could start to monetize that. They could get a television and this team is designing their own products from scratch. Because you're using solar power, it makes sense that all these appliances are designed in the DC world. So there's this opportunity to to lock in a customer, to sell them on a uh, innovative products, to move them out of out of poverty into the middle class, and then ideally that company could end up transforming the way that we live in this country. 
because the more that we start using renewable fuels, the more it makes sense that we start to make a transition over to DC power. And some of the stuff that we're using right now is incredibly inefficient. It's so cool because hardware startups have such an impact on day-to-day physical lives, and and so do SaaS startups as well. But you can see, especially when it comes to the developing world, um, I can imagine for someone like yourself being a part of helping those companies grow and then seeing them actually helping thousands of people uh, must feel absolutely amazing uh, for you uh, to to be a part of that for them. Yeah, it's pretty freaking cool. When when you um. You know, what What advice do you have? I'm sure you meet hundreds of entrepreneurs that would love to be involved in your program or would love to, you know, meet you or get time from you. Uh, what do you look for in founders that um, you think, you know what, this guy or gal is going to make it? I, I, I feel really good about them. What are the traits or the attributes that you look for in successful winning entrepreneurs? Well, I want to caveat that with saying that venture capitalists and accelerators are wrong more than they're right. So I might be looking for something that... Uh, the vast majority of a venture capitalist portfolio is going to be, be um, companies that fail. So what we look for in particular, though, is because we're investing so early in a company's life cycle, they have a prototype, but they haven't uh, figured out product market fit. We're looking for someone that is curious, that they're going to ask a lot of questions, that they're going to... We have to have conviction that, sure, they might have some sense of product market fit today, but that they're going to find it. And when the ecosystem changes, when the environment changes around them, they're going to pivot to wherever it makes sense for that, that business to be. We see a lot of companies that maybe start in consumer and go enterprise or vice versa. And having the dexterity to move between those worlds is, is really helpful for the entrepreneur. So we look for curiosity and coachability. Can you talk more about conviction? I, I hear we've talked to multiple VCs that talk just about conviction, the importance of you know knowing that this is my path and my journey. Is Do you believe that, that conviction is something that comes uh, like organically, like people just have it or they don't? Or do you think that conviction comes through something else? And if it does come through something else, how do entrepreneurs get better at uh, communicating how they think or articulate the way they think to venture capitalists? Well, I don't see it as being black and white. So when I think about conviction, I think about um, where where does it make sense to be stubborn and where does it make sense to be flexible? We had an entrepreneur that was trying to make a product and we said, hey, instead of showing, um, he was doing a display product, Instead of showing artwork on it, how about showing, um, showing TV shows? It's like, no, this is not a television. This is meant for art. So having certain types of conviction helps on the product side is incredibly important. You, we like investing in people that have a strong product vision. Um, where conviction gets tricky is when you're, um, when you're flying the plane and it's crashing and you're saying, I'm not going to pull up. I'm going to keep, keep doing what I'm doing. You're... you're- ego or your emotional side is is not allowing you to kind of take that step back and see things the way they are. Um, yeah, there's a fine line between confidence and arrogance. And so we, we look for a level of confidence, but um, I think a lot of entrepreneurs have an ability to, to close off that insecurity and just say, I'm going to plow through, I'm just going to push forward. I've been right so many times, I'm going to keep doing this, even though everyone else and all the signals are saying, hey, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's important to be able to take a step back and just say, hey, this is what I think. I feel like I have strong confidence on this. Someone prove me wrong. Someone play devil's advocate. Someone play black hat, uh, red hat, um, like the de novo six hats model. Someone, someone play that role for me and tell me, tell us why we're wrong. Do you see any correlation in this uh, scenario between single founders versus like co-founders where people have someone to bounce ideas off of or have someone to sort of play versus those that don't? Yeah. Um, 
Y Combinator, Techstars, we all like to have more than one founder um, in our programs. And there's been exceptions for all of us. But what we see is when you have multiple founders there, you'll be in a conversation with a potential customer, a mentor, whoever, and two people will hear two different things. If it's only one person, it's easy to only hear what you want to hear and the dismiss bias, it. Right. Exactly. When you have two people, maybe there's something like a gem of an idea there that one person heard one thing, one person heard another, and then you just build from that. So, so meaning that um, you've seen that um, because startups can be so chaotic, because there's so many decisions that need to be made, sometimes having a balance amongst the co-founding team can help when it comes to this idea of being too confident or being too, you know, it, it, this sort of, you've seen that uh, having that level is a good thing as opposed to being a bad thing. Yeah, and um, I would equate it to like speed of learning, speed of execution. So the faster you're able to learn from your mistakes, the faster you're able to learn from your customers, the better off you, you'll be. And if you keep on rejecting certain ideas and not having uh, another person keep you in check, then um, it'll slow you down. When you, when you go through an accelerator, you want to move as quickly as possible. Having two, three people in most of your meetings helps you to accelerate, even though it seems inefficient. It definitely helps. So we talk about conviction and the importance of, of really putting your all into it. What are some of the, um, the missteps? What are some of the areas where entrepreneurs have gone the wrong direction for you and you've thought, mm, I don't think this is the right fit for us? Um, said another way, for anyone that has a hardware startup that's listening to this podcast, what's the way that they should not be approaching Make in LA and, and maybe um, you know, accelerators in general? So I would just take it from the Make in LA standpoint because I think every accelerator is different. One of the things that we caution entrepreneurs to do is to not overraise, not underraise. If you raise too much money, you have a tendency to spend your way out of a problem instead of solving it. And too much of, of that muscle of spending instead of solving uh, creates major problems where instead of spending maybe $2 million to bring to market a vending machine, you're spending $100 million. Why I, I read on your website that there are really these five core principles that Make in LA cares about. Can we talk a little bit more about the importance of you know each of them? What does being a curious founder mean to you? We just talked a little bit about that, but why is curiosity the number one core value for Make in LA? Well, I think it's the number one thing that we look for in our founders, just because there's so many roads ahead for the founders that we invest in. They have a prototype, but there's a long journey ahead, and it's important to be curious. It's important to absorb feedback as quickly as possible, learn, and iterate. What does it mean to you to be a principled founder? It means that you have a... Um, there's a lot of different ways that we've been talking about this. Initially, it was around um, morals and ethics. Recently, it's been turned to uh, diversity encouraging um, and including different opinions into every single conversation, um, not just opinions of your team, but also of the end customers. Uh, so uh, principle number three is creative. And I can imagine that so many of your founders, because they're hardware, like they're naturally creative people. But um, what does it mean at a deeper level to um, be a core principle when you say, you know, being creative um, is, is one of the keys here? What, is it, what does being creative mean to you? Well, creative um, is another, um, the way that we look at creativity is about around empathy, that when you're having a conversation with a customer, you're understanding what that customer wants, and they're saying, these are my problems. Being creative means to us that you're able to identify that, that problem and then come up with a solution to solve it. Awesome. Hungry, to be hungry. Why must an entrepreneur be hungry to be successful at making LA? 
because there's a lot of hungry people out there that want to do the same type of thing. Ideas have been democratized. And so just having a good idea, having people that came out of a great university um, is not enough these days. You have to be hungry. You have to want it more than the next person. And let's uh, end with number five, confidence. What does confidence mean to you? Well, we, we like to talk about confidence instead of arrogance. So confidence means that you have certain convictions on, on key areas, but you're not, um, if there's a better idea, you're open-minded to that. Sean, where, uh, you know, what, what are the types of entrepreneurs that you would like to see uh, applying more to make in LA? So uh, you could answer this. If you're the type of entrepreneur that blank, uh, who would you be talking to? And, and if there's anyone that's listening that might be the right fit, who would they be? Yeah, sure. So we invest in companies that are building something physical. So that could be things like high heel shoes and rockets. It could be a wearable, robotics. If you are a founder that is making something in the physical world, you've created a prototype, come see us. If it's too expensive to create a prototype, create, create a proof of concept and then come see us. We, have, we try to make ourselves as accessible as possible. So um, our email addresses are available. We answer LinkedIn, Twitter. Um, we also have a form on our website where you can just submit it. I look at um, all the companies that send their pitch decks through the Make Nolly website and the Meal Capital website. And for last couple questions here, Sean, if you were to join the Make in LA startup, if I was to join the Make in LA startup, what's kind of the program like? Is it, is it, uh, do we have space there with other founders and entrepreneurs? Do we meet every couple of weeks? What's sort of the setup and what would I expect if I was to join? So I talked about how lonely it is to be a leader. We work really hard to create a sense of community. Uh, so you're there for four months. During those four months, on-site programming is Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. That gives you a four-day weekend to be wherever you need to be, whether that's customer visits or that's at, um, at a conference, wherever it is. So during those three days, what's life like? It's intense. We've had entrepreneurs spend the first week with us and say, holy crap, it feels like I've been here for a year. Um, a lot of accelerators do, like for example, Y Combinator, they have the weekly programming and then lots of virtual. A lot of our programming is on-site. We have so many incredible resources in Los Angeles. We bring them to our location. We have them work hands-on with the entrepreneurs. Our three partners are working hands-on with our, our partners. Our, our three partners are working hands-on with the entrepreneurs as well during the program. So you're on-site around 7, 8, 9 a.m. You're leaving every single day around 8, 9 p.m. Wow. So it is, um, you know, for those that are listening, I think that, you, you know, joining an accelerator program or joining a, a incubator program, from what I've heard, is as much about the community and the people that you're around and the energy in the room as it is about, uh, you know, having this opportunity to get venture, to get some funding. Um, I think that, you know, having been in Mucker myself uh, for, for uh, some time, uh, just um, being around other people that are pushing themselves uh, is such an incredible uh, opportunity. And um, Sean, I just want to say thank you so, so much for joining us here on the podcast. Where can people find you and um, you know, where, do, where do you most communicate on the socials? Yeah, sure. So I am on Twitter at Sean from LA. You could also email me, Sean at makingla.com. Awesome. Uh, Guys, from everyone uh, that's watching the podcast demo day, thank you so, so much. Sean, I really appreciate you, man. Thank you for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you. Yes. Next on Demo Day. 
what's the sort of KPI or metrics that you're looking for that actually get you excited? Yeah, so so it's gonna be uh, the way they articulate the idea, how much I believe in the idea, probably what I just think about the market in general.